Chapter Two of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: Tortuous Traveling, Clippers and Tablets, Dumped at a Siding. I join my battalion. Not much sleep that night. A sort of feverish coma instead. Wild dreams in which I and the gendarme were attacking a German trench, the officer in charge of which we found to be the base camp adjutant after all. However, I got up early, packed my few belongings in my valise, which had mysteriously turned up from the docks, and went off on the tram down to Havre. That hundred men I had brought over had nothing to do with me now. I was entirely on my own and was off to the front to join my battalion. Down at Havre the officials at the station gave me a complicated yellow diagram known as a travelling pass, and I got into a carriage in the train bound for Rouen. I was not alone now. A whole forest of second lieutenants like myself were in the same train, and with them a solid congealed mass of valises, packs, revolvers, and haversacks. At last the train started, and, after the usual hour spent in feeling that you have left all the most important things behind, I settled down on a mound of equipment and tried to do a bit of a sleep. So what with sleeping, smoking, and talking, we jolted along until we pulled up at Rouen. Here I had to leave the train for some obscure reason in order to go to the Palais de Justice to get another ticket. I padded off down over the bridge into Rouen, found the Palais, went in and was shown along to an office that dealt in tickets. In this dark and dingy oak-panelled saloon illuminated by electric light and the glittering reflections from gold braid, there lurked a general or two. I was here given another pass entitling me to be deposited at a certain siding in Flanders. Back I went to the station, and in due course rattled off in the train again towards the north. A fearfully long journey we had up to the front. The worst of it was that nobody knew, or, if they did, wouldn't tell you, which way you were going, or how long it would take to get to your destination. For instance, we didn't know we were going to Rouen till we got there, and we didn't know we were going from Rouen to Boulogne until after a night spent in the train, the whole outfit jolted and jangled into the gare de something down by the wharf at that salubrious seaport. We spent a complete day and part of an evening at Boulogne, as our train did not leave until midnight. I and another chap, who was going to the next railhead to mine at the front, went off together into the town and had lunch at a café in the high street. We then strolled around the shops, buying a few things we needed. Not very attractive things, either, but I'll mention them here to show how we thought and felt. We first went to a pharmacy and got some boxes of morphia tablets, after which we went to an ironmonger's, don't know the French for it, and each bought a ponderous pair of barbed wire cutters. So what with wire clippers and morphia tablets, we were gay. About four o'clock we calmed down a bit and went to the same restaurant where we had lunched. Here we had tea with a couple of French girls, exceedingly good to look upon, who had apparently escaped from Lille. We got on splendidly with them till a couple of French officers, one with the Legion of Honor, came along to the next table. That took all the shine out of us, so we determined to quit and cleared off to the Hotel de Folkestone, where we had a bath to console us. Dinner followed, and then, feeling particularly hilarious, I made my will. Not the approved will of family lawyer style, but just a letter announcing in bald and harsh terms that in the event of my remaining permanently in Belgium, I wanted my total small worldly wealth to be disposed of in a certain way. 
felt better after this outburst and rejoining my pal we went off into the town again and by easy stages reached the train at about one a m the train started and we creaked and groaned our way out of boulogne we were now really off for the front and the situation consequently became more exciting we were slowly getting nearer and nearer to the real thing but what a train it dribbled and rumbled along at about five miles an hour and i verily believe stopped at every farmhouse within sight of the line i could not help thinking that the engine driver was a german in disguise who was trying to prevent our ever arriving at our destination i tried to sleep but each time the train pulled up i awoke with a start and thought that we'd got there this went on for many hours and as i knew we must be getting somewhere near my dreams became worse and worse i somehow began to think that the engine driver was becoming cautious he was a Frenchman again, thought that perhaps he had to get down occasionally and walk ahead a bit to see if it was safe to go on. Nobody in the train had the least idea where the front was, how far off, or what it was like. For all we knew, our train might be going right up into the rear of the front-line trenches. Somewhere around 6 a.m. I reached my siding. All the others except myself and one other had got out at previous halts. I got down from the carriage on to the cinder track and went along the line to the station. Nobody about except a few Frenchmen, so I went back to the carriage again and sat looking out through the dimmed window at the rain-soaked flat country. The other fellow with me was doing the same. A sudden profound depression came over me. Here was I in this other cove dumped down at this horrible siding, nothing to eat and nobody to meet us. How rude and callous of someone or something! I looked at my watch. It had stopped, and on trying to wind it I found it was broken. I stared out of the window again, gave that up and stared at the opposite seat. Suddenly my eye caught something shiny under the seat. I stooped and picked it up. It was a watch. I have always looked upon this episode as an omen of some sort, but of what sort I can't quite make out. Finding a watch means finding time. Perhaps it meant I would find time to write this book. On the other hand, it may have meant that my time had come. Who knows? At about eight o'clock by my new watch, I again made an attack on the station and at last found the RTO, which, being interpreted, means the Railway Transport Officer. He told me where my battalion was to be found, but didn't know whether they were in the trenches or out. He also added that if he were me, he wouldn't hurry about going there, as I could probably get a lift in an ASC wagon later on. I took his advice, and having left all my tackle by his office, went into the nearest estaminet to get some breakfast. The owner, a genial but garrulous little Frenchman, spent quite a lot of time explaining to me how those hateful people, the Bosch, had occupied his house not so long before, and had punched a hole in his kitchen wall to use a machine gun through. After breakfast I went to the station and arranged for my baggage to be sent on by an ASC wagon and then started out to walk to Nieppe, which I learnt was the place where my battalion billeted. As I plodded along the muddy road in the pouring rain, I became aware of a sound with which I was afterwards to become horribly familiar. Boom! That was all. But I knew it was the voice of the guns, and in that moment I realized that here was the war, and that I was in it. I ploughed along for about four miles down uninteresting mud canals, known on maps as roads, until finally I entered Nieppe. The battalion I heard from a passing soldier was having its last day in billets prior to going into the trenches again.
They were billeted at a disused brewery at the other end of the town. I went on down the squalid street and finally found the place. A crowd of dirty, war-worn-looking soldiers were clustered about the entrance in groups. I went in through the large archway past them into the brewery yard. Soldiers everywhere, resting, talking, and smoking. I inquired where the officers' quarters were and was shown to the brewery head office. Here I found the battalion officers, many of whom I knew, and went into their improvised mess-room which in previous days had apparently been the brewery board-room. I found everything very dark, dingy, and depressing. That night the battalion was going into the trenches again, and last evenings in billets are not generally very exhilarating. I sat and talked with those I knew, and presently the colonel came in and I heard what the orders were for the evening. I felt very strange and foreign to it all, as everyone except myself had had their baptism of trench life, and consequently at this time I did not possess that calm indifference, bred of painful experience, which is part of the essence of a true trench-dweller. The evening drew on. We had our last meal in billets, sardines, bread, butter, and cake sort of thing, slung onto the bare table by the soldier-servants, who were more engrossed in packing up things they were taking to the trenches than in anything else. And now the time came to start off. I found the machine-gun section in charge of a sergeant, a most excellent fellow, who had looked after the section since the officer whose place I had come to fill had been wounded. I took over from him, and as the battalion moved off along the road, fell in behind with my latest acquisition, a machine-gun section with machine-guns to match. It was quite dusk now, and as we neared the great Bois de Plugstert, known all over the world as Plug Street Wood, it was nearly night. The road was getting rougher, and the houses dotted about in dark silhouettes against the skyline had a curiously deserted and worn appearance. Everything was looking dark, damp, and drear. On we went down the road through the wood, stumbling along in the darkness over the shell-pitted track. Weird noises occasionally floated through the trees, the faint crack of a rifle, or the rumble of limber wheels. A distant light flickered momentarily in the air, cutting out in bold relief the ruins of the shattered chateau on our left. On we went through this scene of dark and humid desolation, past the occasional mounds of former habitations, on into the trenches before Plug Street Wood. End of chapter 2 Recording by Philip Gould